0: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen McCaff and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Hail Satan edition. It's Wednesday, October 30th, 2019. On today's show, it's Halloween week, and as Julia Turner hates horror movies, what do we do? We subjected Julia Turner to the horror movie of all horror movies, the horrorist of them all, Rosemary's Baby. And then Modern Love is a New York Times column. Now it's an eight-part Amazon TV show anthology. It's A-listed up the yin-yang we discuss. And finally... For a long time now, he has been saying and appears to believe excrescent things. Why hasn't Morrissey been canceled? We'll be joined by Randall Roberts of the LA Times. Joining me today is the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. That's Julia Turner. Hey, Julia.
1: Hello, hello.
0: I cannot wait to hear what you thought about Rosemary's Baby. It's so chilling. Oh, my God. Dana Stevens. (laughs) Also, never having discussed this movie, I can't wait. How are you doing? very well good uh dana is the film critic for slate.com all right let's let's dive in
1: i should note before we start today that there is some kind of construction and or drilling happening on the los angeles times campus this morning so you may hear occasional in the background for which i apologize
0: Rosemary's Baby is the 1968 horror masterpiece written and directed by Roman Polanski. It stars Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes and the Dakota apartment building. Anyway, Cassavetes and Farrow are uh, young marrieds. They've just moved into said building. Their nosy elderly next door neighbors take an unusual interest in them, but especially in her and her pregnancy, to the point that over time, Rosemary begins to suspect that these are deeply, deeply wicked people. They are trying, she believes, to somehow infect or capture the soul of her baby. But we, the audience, know the situation is far worse than she can ever imagine. What follows is, I think, in some estimations, and I absolutely am sure in mine, the best horror movie ever made Rosemary's baby. Let's listen to a clip.
2: Is that their hint for today? They're my friends. Don't They're call a bunch them of not very bright bitches who ought to mind their own goddamn business. All they said was
0: get a second opinion.
2: Rosemary, you got the best doctor in New York. You know who Dr. Hill is? He's a Charlie nobody. That's who he is.
3: I'm tired of hearing how great Dr. Saperstein is.
2: Well, we'll have to pay Saperstein, we'll have to pay Hill. Well, it's out of the question. Uh-uh. uh uh-uh. No, I'm, I'm not changing. I just want to go to Dr. Hill and get a second opinion. I won't let you do it, Rome. I mean, because it's, uh, it's not fair to Saperstein.
3: Not fair to... What are you talking about? What about what's fair to me? Look,
2: if you want a second opinion, you tell Saperstein... And, and and let him decide. No, if,
1: I, I, if, I want if, Dr. Hill. <laughs> At least have you that won't much person, pay, then I'll... I'll... You
0: Julia, I'm going to switch it up. Uh, it's a movie, but I'm going to start with you. You'd never seen this film before. Just incredible. What'd you make of it?
1: Ah, oh, what a great movie. I mean, you know, we're going to talk on the show today about people who've been canceled and whether they should have been canceled or not. So stipulated everything that there is to say about Roman Polanski on that point, and we'll come back to it, I'm sure. But... I don't know how I had never seen this movie. I mean, I worked in the time-life building. I used those phone booths to make cell phone calls uh, as a tot. I i don't know how I never saw this, other than that I just generally haven't seen enough things. But I loved it. And part of why I loved it is that I don't think it's the scariest horror movie of all time because it's much more of a psychological suspense thriller than it is a true heads twisting, blood running down the walls, horror movie. Like there's not a ton of, there's a sense of slowly creeping dread. Mm -hmm. And you basically know that she, you know, part of what I don't like about watching horror movies is, um, you know, the feeling that anyone may be like got at any moment. But you have the sense, whatever the plot is or whatever is going on, that she's, quote unquote safe not psychologically safe or actually safe but safe for the duration of the pregnancy so you have this little bubble of protection as you watch and curiosity of like what is this what's happening to her that made it a um, plausible scary movie viewing experience as opposed to one that I just was like I don't want to be here I don't want to watch this what am I doing yikes
0: Right. And uh, but for the record, I did not say it was the scariest. But but Dane, I said it was the most horrifying. And I, I stand by that judgment. You clearly you must have been familiar with this movie. Uh, what's it like rewatching it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I've seen this movie countless times, but it was a total pleasure to see it again, knowing that we were about to talk about it you know, not as this established cinematic classic, but as a scary Halloween movie that Julia Turner had just been made to see for the first time. I love when we go back and revisit a non current movie in this way. Um but there's there's so much to say about this one. I I kinda don't know where to start. I agree with Julia that genre classification with this movie in a way kind of takes the horror and the and the thrills and the creepiness out of it because what's so fun to watch over the course of its fairly long running time it's 2 hours and 13 minutes or something like that there's really a lot packed in there and so there's It starts off almost as a sort of comedy about a young couple who moves into this old building and gets too close to their creepy neighbors. That actually lasts for a pretty long time in the movie before there's any suggestion of deviltry at all. There's just something a little bit off about this world that they're moving into. And, of course, the Dakota, the building, the Dakota starring, at least the exterior is starring, as the building they move into is part of the general creepiness. But then it moves through this period, as Julia says, of being really almost a sort of a retroactively seen feminist psychological thriller about this woman who's entrapped into a domestic life she hasn't chosen. I mean, leaving aside the devil for a moment, there's a big segment of the middle of the movie that's just about the experience of being a young wife in the 1960s, right? Even before she gets pregnant and sort of being... uh, subject to other people's opinions about what, what gynecologist you, could, you should go to, as we heard in that clip where she's fighting with her husband, played fantastically by John Cassavetes, and, you know, not being sure of her place in his professional life as he becomes more and more ex- obsessed with his acting career. All of these things later fit into the Satanist narrative, but there's a long period of the movie in which it could be The Stepford Wives, <laughs> based mm-hmm. on another novel by Ira yeah, Levin, <laughs> by the Ira same Levin, novelist yeah. who wrote Rosemary's Baby. Um, it, it's sort of a critique of suburbia, in a way, You know, and I think that Roman Polanski's eye is very sharp for that. I mean, as a European filmmaker coming to America and working in Hollywood for the first time, he has this kind of outsider's eye on the strangeness of that domestic setup. So that's a small part of the movie in terms of running time. But it's really important, I think, to lay all of that stuff down so that when the heavy duty Satanist insanity starts in the second hour, it's happening to real people in a real world that's been built very painstakingly for us
0: uh no absolutely i think that for the record i think the movie is one of the best hollywood movies ever made it's a stone cold shot by shot uh, masterpiece it presumes it's, it's just such a reminder of when movies were movies you know and real estate in new york city was cheap it's such a time capsule in that sense uh uh, uh, the movie's not it didn't come pre-iconic as it were it created these iconic moments that uh, it. this movie bears re-watching this is the fourth or fifth time I've seen it you see new things every time Polanski's eye and control are total in the film um, I think the key to making this movie work is taking this absolutely insane premise, you know, in some ways the most over the top premise you could imagine. And as Dana says, making it seem as real as possible, right? Through through directorial patience and and just a, you know, a very sure hand on Polanski's part. But what you're doing is grafting the story of a somewhat ordinary couple's ordinary experience of getting pregnant. And the psychology of that, the very real psychology of that, where she's balanced between anxiety and a deep, quiet, abiding maternal joy. She's nesting, you know, uh, and she's maybe a little bit confused about her husband's experience of the pregnancy. He seems to be hiding his emotional state from her. All of these things are not unfamiliar to people who've gone through a pregnancy. And then grafting on top of that and building like the baby itself right you know as the baby's growing inside her moving us slowly towards you know uh the satanic um and create really crazy aspect of the plot and by the way also with total control the craziness of the plot is made more realistic by the fact that she seems to be going nuts i mean we we, we know that she's right. We know that her suspicions are true. They're even worse than she knows. But the fact that she's kind of falling apart under this, you know, perverse tutelage. And then the ultimate, to me, the thing that's always been most chilling about the movie is it's really as much as anything about a husband selling off his firstborn to Satanists, right? It's really about a husband committing the Ultimate Faustian sin, and Cassavetes is marvelous, and and you know Cassavetes knows what's happening as the husband knows what's happening from the beginning. Uh, he portrays this utter self-serving hypocrite so beautifully, and I love, I love that the Satanists, the next door neighbor Satanists, last names are anagrams for Cassavetes, which I have to believe was a change that Polanski made very, very wickedly. Um, no, it's not a change. That's book.
3: No, it's in the is book. Is that right?
0: Oh, magnificent. And the, what's masterful about the movie is as you bring these two, the parallax of these two stories, the ordinary, slightly anxious story of a first pregnancy together with the totally over-the-top story of Satanic you know, uh, capture, and you bring them together at that point. What ought to be the joyful threshold moment when the baby first moves, the quickening, I think it's called. And for Rosemary, that returns her to the joy of her pregnancy, which has just been painful to that moment. But what Cassavetes can't even touch the stomach, it's so fucking chilling because he knows what's in there. He knows the role that he's played in putting it in there. I mean, that, Juliet, that is, it's the ultimate gaslight and it is so much more fucking horrifying than the scariest jump scare.
3: I also just want to add to that that what she says over and over again in that scene is oh, a direct yeah. quote from Frankenstein, from Doctor Frankenstein in the oh. in the classic Universal
1: horror movie. It's alive! It's alive! Oh,
0: and she, oh, oh, God. it's
1: so good. And it's and the other thing that's amazing, and that's amazing, given the turns that Polanski's life went on to take, is that it's a movie about believing women. It's like a movie about mm-hmm. whether men believe women's reports of their own experience. And I mean, to me, the most powerful I love that we played that scene where she's arguing about the doctor, the fact that um, the advice she gets from the creepy neighbors and the doctor they refer her to is don't talk to your friends. Don't read books. Did you pick up a book? Don't, you know, don't acquire learning (laughs) like the 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 attempts to disempower her and her independent judgment of her own situation and to discount her ability to ascertain what's going on. Her ability to build a network that could help her navigate it, uh, her kind of independent economic autonomy and desire to go find resources that could help her figure out. I mean, one wonders what the first doctor was looking for in the blood test. He he says she should come back for a blood <laughs> test and she's confused about it. And then she just sort of forgets. It's like, what is the blood test? That's like, oh, by the way, your fetus is a <laughs> demon spawn. I didn't realize that medical science had advanced that far in 1965. But um, I, like, it's just, it's, you know, I knew that it was a kind of feminist horror movie about pregnancy. I guess on some level, I knew that Jordan Peele had spoken reverently about kind of using horror as a mode for, for social commentary and how it was that the gender politics of Rosemary's Baby were a model for the racial politics of Get Out. I knew all those things on some level, but it's so weird to watch this movie that's about whether women's accounts can be believed and their experiences respected from this person who's now, you know, can't set foot in this country because of the accusations against him. I I, I found that, I mean, it's just, it, it must be one thing to have watched this movie and fallen in love with it and then had all of that unfold. And it's another thing to encounter it as just a pure document that has all of that historicity attached to it.
3: Another moment that really struck me, Julia, in relation to watching this in the era of Me Too is something that I think, I'm sort of shocked at this, but I think had gotten by me in previous viewings, or at least I just hadn't seen it in a really long time, but you know, the, the the sex act by which this child of Satan is conceived, which is filmed in this long, I mean, more than five minute long dream sequence that's shot with this kind of crazy surrealist. It's just a beautifully shot sequence. And anybody who's seen it knows what I'm talking about. I don't want to spoil it. Um, but the way that her husband explains the next morning the scratches on her arm after this satanic ritual is to say, oh, well, you were drunk. Actually, she was drugged by the Satanists. Uh, you fell asleep. And I had sex with you. Oops, sorry about that. I was kind of loaded too, right? So basically, even again, Satan aside, let's take Satan out of the equation for a minute. It is by an act of violation that the baby was was conceived. And yet that's kind of laughed off by the husband and in a way by the movie as well.
1: I don't know if it is by the movie. I think the movie knows that you're supposed to think that's cre- that's creepy. That's part of what's so nuts about it, that that's, it, it, it's part of how... You know, the, the true the darkest force in this movie is not the Satanists, it's the husband. Like these oh, works. They're yep. just you know, they're just true believers with with, you know, pentagrams in their eyes. <laughs> but
3: they're acting out of sincerity. <laughs> and, and really and awesome style. Can I just add that Ruth Gordon's style in this <laughs> oh, is I God. just I want to be an old lady like She's Ruth amazing. Gordon, even if I have to be a Satanist for it. She did, by the way, win an Academy Award for uh, Best yep. Supporting Actress for this role.
0: Uh, can I just say one thing is that this is that on you know, I think it was my second viewing or third viewing. I, I found a shot that just, um, I, it just bowls me over. There's you, you've, you've had no hint of anything. You're very early on in the movie. This, this couple next door has sort of forced themselves socially on the young couple. But you don't really know. I mean, maybe there's some vague intimation. They're a little weird, but nothing really. And the two women go into the kitchen to do the dishes, super gendered. And the two men stay behind in the sitting room. And there's just this moment where you get a close. I mean, the 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 acting that Mia Farrow's face does in this movie is it is just an astonishing thing to watch. And and over time, over the course of the movie, she is goes progressively. She becomes emaciated and semi insane as she would, but but that hasn't happened yet. Realization and horror have not started dawning on her face. That that's still to come. But you get this first tiny little flicker of it. The camera's just on her face. And something occurs to her, and she turns around and looks back into the drawing room. And Do you remember what she sees?
3: Smoke. She sees the smoke from their the cigarettes. The
0: two plumes yeah. of smoke coming, and you know the two men are sno- smoking together, and it is the most sinister shot, because th- that's the moment. That's the moment when um, Mr. Kastavetz is making the initial proposal and do you think they make
3: the deal that early i thought maybe they were just supposed to be male bonding at
1: that moment he goes back over the next night i feel like there's that's when he's first ensorcelled it's unclear if the actual pact
0: is struck then i I think you're meant to believe something has been floated go back and look the look on Cassavetti's face and the actor Cassavetti's face and the guilt is already the duplicity and guilt are there um And the double talking, but it just, the the movie, and another thing, Dana, I noticed that over and over and over and over again this time for the first time is how often Polanski shoots through interior shots through doors where one person, you can only half see them, they're bifurcated by the threshold or invisible. He does it over and over and over again. It's just, the movie's just a masterpiece
1: well and i love how how messed up their relationship is before they even meet the satanists you know the 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 establishing scenes of them arguing over what apartment to take and the i love the scene of their first night in the apartment you know move it just it, it's such a such a true human experience that you don't see a lot in the movies when you get to the place before the boxes and you eat dinner on the floor uh with the one lamp you brought in with its cellophane around the shade it 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 there the the relationship is rotten, and he's rotten, and that's there from the beginning, before before the satanist Glint even comes in. But I I do just want to go back to Farrah's performance. She's astonishing in this. I, her eyes are just so big, and there's the way that she carries her body, the the tautness and the waif like nature of it. She plays it both ways, as making her very bird-like and fragile and breakable seeming but also kind of angular and sharp and uncontainable um you know with none of the soft roundness that you might think of with a typical pregnant figure there's there's such fragility and strength in her carriage just her posture and carriage in the performance that I love
3: well and she conveys so well especially in that earlier part of the movie before the explicit satanic stuff comes in, the strain and the struggle of being a, a good wife in the late 20th century in middle class you know i mean she just always seems to be performing at some level performing her own charm her own femininity right and so that makes what happens to her when she becomes this sort of monstrous vessel all the more kind of allegorically powerful
0: mm. and if people haven't seen the movie i mean just uh, i you know just looking over my notes you know imagine a movie that's so sure of itself that whether or not a young wife eats a chocolate mousse you know the universe seems to hang in the balance in that moment and and your growing sense of nausea you know first trimester nausea uh, is really starting to kick in and you're like just don't don't eat the mousse it's so different from really anything we, i mean even altar you know uh really can't go as as kind of creepily subtle as this is. All right. Well it was very easy enough to watch. It's streaming there right there on Amazon Prime. Uh if you haven't seen it and you can get over your Polanski t- entirely justified Polanski hesitations. It is it is a stone cold masterpiece, Rosemary's baby. All right, moving on. All right, before we go any further, uh I know that we've got some business, big business this week, Dana.
3: Yes, our business is getting bigger and bigger as our live shows get closer and closer. Uh, we will be in Los Angeles and Vancouver this November, just a couple weeks from now. That's November 13th in Los Angeles at the Barnsdall Gallery Theater in Barnsdall Art Park. And what I wanted to note about that L.A. show, detail that I don't think we've shared on the show before, is that everybody who comes, your ticket comes with an invitation to the after party. So if you come see us at Barnesdall Art Park, you can also hang out with us afterwards over tacos, beer, and wine and uh, get to know us. We really want to get to know our L.A. listeners, especially now that one of our regulars is an L.A. resident.
0: Right, you're but you're essentially coming to a party with us, doing a little podcast in the middle of it.
1: We've been overselling the live show and underselling, a uh, party with tacos and booze and a great little vista over the twinkling lights of Los Angeles at the Barnsdale. Um, so you should come on down. Also, we have a special guest, Justin Chang, the uh, film critic for the L.A. Times, and a long time. Uh, how, how do you Are you and Justin just like film Twitter pals, Dana? Or yes, you... I'm
3: really excited to have Justin because I have never met Justin in person. I actually saw him outside a movie screening in Los Angeles once uh, when I was there on a research trip, and uh, he was talking to some people. And I was too shy and overawed by how how <laughs> impressed I am by Justin Chang as a film critic. I later told him that, and he said, "You should have come and said hi." So this will be my first time
1: officially meeting him. <laughs> and we're going to discuss what is, I think, the, one of the fall movies I'm most excited to see. Which is *Parasite*, Bong Joon-ho's raved-about uh, thriller, which um, we're gonna, which Justin has been championing since he first saw it earlier this year. Uh, so I cannot wait to see that movie, discuss it with you guys, and Justin, and tacos, and beer at the top of a beautiful hill in Los Angeles. Please come on down.
3: Then two days later for our listeners in the Pacific Northwest, we're doing our first show in Vancouver, a place that we're going by your invitation. We put out a call on the podcast to see if we had enough listeners to put together a show and you responded with enthusiasm. So we are coming to you. That's November 15th at the Granville Island stage.
0: Yeah, I just want to say also that it was, the, you know, it was when Dana had come across some book in some bookstore and then regretted not buying it. And we got tons of emails from people. Uh, fans in uh, vancouver saying oh i'll go buy i'll go buy the book and i'll mail it to you it was so sweet and it inspired us to uh, book a live show there and vancouver you promised us that you'd sell out and you're oh so very close you're very very close but you're not there yet and we are beyond excited to go to vancouver to do this show but we would love a full house we want to see your pretty faces there so if you're on the fence if you're trying to decide whether the babysitter is worth it. Go ahead, take the plunge. We really want to see you there. We want to sell out. It's going to be a really, it's going to be a fun night. We're going to bring it. I promise.
3: We should also mention that there's an after party as well at the Vancouver show. You can get tickets for the show alone or tickets for the show. Plus hangout party afterwards with, again, booze, food, and hopefully chatting with all of you. So for either of those shows, you can find out information and buy your tickets at slate.com slash live. In Slate Plus today, we are going to be talking about an ongoing and, to me, extremely irritating discussion, fight, feud, Twitter war between great auteur directors, including Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola and Ken Loach, and Marvel and other blockbuster movie fans who have taken to the Internet in droves to protest Martin Scorsese's dismissal of the Marvel blockbuster phenomenon. I'm hoping that will turn into more than just a discussion of what to me is kind of a tempest in a teapot fight and become a general discussion about high versus low cultural taste, whether that has any meaning anymore, and the future of cinema in the age of the blockbuster. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can, of course, sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, which is a great way to help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and all your other favorite Slate shows. If you want to support the Culture Gab Fest and all the rest of the work Slate does, please go to slate.com slash Culture Plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, Steve, what's next?
0: Modern Love has been a New York Times column forever, as long as I can remember. It's now been adapted into an eight-part Amazon TV show anthology. Uh, it's got a lot of A-list uh, talent behind it. One episode is written by the estimable Sharon Horgan of Catastrophe fame. We're huge fans of her. Uh, hers on this podcast. One stars Anne Hathaway as a woman with bipolar disorder. There's the one written by Horgan has Tina Fey and John Slattery as a married couple at Wits End. You get you get the feel of it. A-list cast, 30-minute rom-coms, all of it to answer, I think, a pretty intriguing question, which is, can the romantic comedy be made fresh in this day and age? It's up against a lot of challenges. Why don't we listen to a clip?
3: <laughs> okay. Oh, gosh. This was great. Do you want to kiss me goodbye here, now?
2: Um, yes, I, I was gonna walk you to your door, because oh. you live on the corner, right?
1: Yeah, but that's okay. You know, you don't have to. You can just. Do it here.
2: (laughs) Why? Was your
1: dad waiting outside with a shotgun or something? Oh, kind of. What?
3: (laughs) No. Uh. No, it's, uh, it's it's
0: Guzmín. Ah. Yeah, he's from Albania. You know, he grew up in a labor camp. His parents were political activists. They were arrested when he was a kid. You know, and I I feel like you're not taking this seriously.
2: Who the hell is Guzmín?
3: That. As good as me.
1: Your doorman?
3: No, he's more than a doorman. It's, it's very hard to explain. He's become
0: a. Oh, shit. <laughs> all right, Dana, let me start with you. Uh, you probably uh, popped through a few of these. What'd you make of them?
3: Yeah, I actually watched a lot of these, and not at all because I was enjoying them, but because I wanted to have <laughs> a lot of ammo for my argument about why this is the worst <laughs> anthology series <Whoa>. in history. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I actually fell into this sort of hate-watching loop where I really wanted to get to the Rosemary's Baby part of the research that so was going to be the juicy fun part. But the more I saw how strangely obliviously bad and oblivious to its own badness this series was, the more I wanted to watch of it so that I could make that case. And now I have to say that all the five episodes I watched have sort of devolved into one treacly mush that I can't really separate one from another. <laughs> But I guess what made me the most mad about this Modern Love series... All right, it's based on this New York Times series that I already am not a fan of. I don't usually read the Modern Love columns when they appear. I'm not saying I've never read one or enjoyed one. or that. I mean, obviously, they're contributed by all kinds of different people with different experiences. So, you know, you can't say one overweening thing about that column. But in general, that column has always struck me as a place for people to... um, To do something that feels a little bit like self-indulgence or score settling, or I'm just not always sure that I want to get into the level of um, knowledge of other strangers' psychological journeys through love that that column offers you. But that's a completely separate question from this show, which I feel like flattens all the differences that appear in that column into this general sugary vision of this Upper middle class New York that seems to just be in this bubble that has nothing to do with the actual city that I live in. And I just, the vision of New York in this movie makes me really mad. Even in that segment we just heard, I mean, the whole idea is that there's this young woman who has this intense relationship with her doorman, completely not sexual. He's kind of a protective guardian who judges all her boyfriends very harshly. He is kind of like the dad at the door with the shotgun kind of thing. I find it kind of a menacing relationship, but the show wants you to find it a heartwarming relationship. And he goes on to kind of sympathize with her as she becomes pregnant by a man she doesn't love, blah, blah, blah. I won't spoil anymore if you want to see the episode But the fact that she lives in this massive doorman building that appears to be in Tribeca or somewhere downtown is only glancingly referred to in one moment when, you know, one of the men she's dating comments on this glorious building she lives in. She says something like, Oh, it's been in my family forever. There's just this this whole show is just swimming in that kind of privilege. And every single apartment is dreamy, every single set is lovely. There is an illusion in one late episode, or not an illusion, there's a character who's homeless and she plays an important part in the story, but only as a kind of baby supplying device for this much better off gay couple who need a child. I don't know. I just, I I, felt, I turned into a Marxist watching this show. <laughs> it made me not only anti-romantic, but anti-capitalist. I just felt such strong antipathy toward it.
1: Uh, preach it. It's it's so pleasing to hear you say all this. I agree 100% about the class politics of this. And, and it's not helped by the fact that the column is Written by writers. I mean, it's a way the thing that's rotten about the column is that it is a way in which the freelance writing and creative community of New York and its environs like monetize their heartbreak by turning whatever happened to them into like a pithy story with a pat lesson. Which is usually like trust yourself, love yourself. That guy fucking sucked. Like, like yeah, that's what I it's mean by score a, settling. It's right? always a self, a self-justifying. It, it's presented as like I'm so humble. I had an experience and I learned something and I'm sharing it with you. But like the undercurrent, very often, is like what I learned. Is that that guy was bananas. Can you get a load of this? Like the text is, I learned and grew. And the subtext is like, would you believe this jerk? And so, but what that translates to when you turn it into show is you realize that it's all, you know, white collar, dexterous with words people. And then it suggests a level of lucre for that set of profession that is friends level unrealistic, <laughs> right? Sex and sexy you know, in the City level. <laughs> I mean, the New York Times is an amazing institution. It is it is a journalistic beacon. Um, it's something I admire, have always admired and admire even more now that I work at a newspaper and understand all the challenges of this business. It's truly extraordinary what they do every day, what they've been able to do, all the debates about canceling them for this or that op-ed or whatever, I have no patience for. It is extraordinary what they do. But I will say that the sense that they are like the paper of the professional rich uh, feels more apparent from the West Coast, like that they are the paper of the Northeastern elite, and, uh, that, you know, a, a view that is not challenged when they assign a piece about living in Highland Park, a neighborhood here in Los Angeles, that, um, You know, talks about the challenges of gentrification by interviewing like a white couple that moved there three years ago and about how charming it used to be to have brown neighbors and how there aren't as many anymore. Like the tone deafness of that (laughs) is not the paper's finest quality, balances against many, 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 many strengths. But this show just like leans into that exact critique of the paper so hard and really is off putting and yet not I also gobbled up a bunch of episodes not just for the compelling hate watch but also because they do this thing to the romantic comedy that's messed up by compressing the timetable like the whole thing with a romantic comedy is the anticipation and the and the parts in the middle where it's all misunderstood and this is like a romantic comedy with just money shots, so it feels even more crass. It's like heartbreak, joy, heartbreak, mm. joy. There's none of the actual relationship building or the attenuated tension or the like. Does he like me or the will this ever work or the yearning or anything? It's just, it's just like clinches, like laments and clinches, and the whole thing feels so crass.
0: Laments and clinches. Oh, I watched. I ended up uh, watching four of these, and it wasn't totally with the same, uh, hate joy that you two have <laughs> expressed. Um, I, the class thing is just, I mean, what's interesting about that is the class thing has just been, you know, uh, um, a defining of the genre really from the beginning, right? Through Nancy Myers films all the way back to Woody Allen's in a way. Right. I mean, they're almost always about white upper middle class educated, super articulate people. They all, they all have been almost without exception. Uh, So what was interesting to me was not only that, but just how much of what made rom-coms rom-coms is, um, you know, can survive into 2019. And so for me, it was, I mean, you know, we're 50 years, you know, not quite, 40 years past Annie Hall. It is a very, very tired genre. And when it works, it balances a certain kind of wisdom about romantic love against um, a certain set of pernicious myths about romantic love and tries, I think, to say something new about it. And I think people's faith in how those two things might balance against one another in this day and age, post uh, social media, post Me Too, post Tinder, post hookup culture. I mean, it just, I don't know that there's a coherent set of beliefs about romantic love, sex, and marriage anymore that a show like this can hang its hat on nor is this thing wise enough about those changes that it can tell us what is modern aka contemporary about contemporary romance um and so i think it's just kind of lost that said you know Sharon Horgan's an incredible comedy writer. Tina Fey and John Slattery are very funny as a married couple. Yeah, that's
3: I, my favorite episode that I saw—the one with Tina Fey and John Slattery. Yeah, I agree.
0: Really yeah. worth starting with that one. And if you can't get past that one, you're no way you're going to connect with the others. Oddly, oddly enough, and I, I agree with the criticism I'm about to get. I kind of like the doorman one. Um, I, I, you know, they're actually in Brooklyn. They're in Prospect Heights. It's kind of a believable old dusty old legacy you know gilded age legacy building that's been refurbished a little bit in the age of brooklyn gentrification you know she inherited the apartment i mean i the real question is like how creeped out are you by this you know um very stolid sentinel who presides not just over the revolving door out into the street, but sort of her whole life. And I thought that was played with a kind of reticence and dignity, both in the writing and the performance of the actor. And I I was like, I might be able to go with this series. And then it just fell apart for me when Anne Hathaway sort of hammed it up as a bipolar, um, you know, a woman suffering from bipolarity. I, I, you know, I can't disagree with anything that you're saying, but there were just, there are little moments Andy Garcia, you know, Andy Garcia and I over time, over the decades have converged on the same look. You know, he probably gained, <laughs> gained 15 pounds and like added a chin a second chin and was like andy nerded up It probably took four hours of makeup to make up look plausibly like steve metcalf but he basically w- was appearing as steve metcalf and i was like ah, you know. <laughs> he
2: lived I- upstate
1: and was frequenting an independent bookstore in upstate new york it was the steve metcalf episode
3: <laughs> steve i just want to say if you want if you really are andy garcia's current double and you want to hear many middle-aged women swoon over you, go see Mamma Mia 2 where he is the hottest thing on screen when he enters as shares romantic interest.
0: I mean, here's the thing, though. All he needs to do is one Stairmaster for five minutes and he's back to Andy Garcia. <laughs> I'll go, so I'll see Mamma Mia 2.
3: Well, the reason I kept on watching this in addition to, you know, wanting to gather ammo for my for my attack of it with you guys is that it, the cast keeps on being compelling, right? You keep clicking on each new one and, and see, oh, well, Andy Garcia and Catherine Keener are in this one. Oh, but wait a minute, Tina Fey. And Anne Hathaway, it's got this A-list cast. And so it keeps you watching that way. But I just feel like all those people are so underemployed in these in these segments. And uh, I see why they signed on for the experiment of it. But the writing is just not there. And so, you know, how much can you enjoy the performance of a great actor when they're so overqualified for their role?
0: Mm, I do, LaGilia, one thing I will say, though, I love the idea of the 30-minute short story, like the anthology format at 30 30- 30 minutes an episode so that you essentially have, you know, filmed short stories could work. I
3: guess. But why do you keep watching from one to the next? I mean, I feel like anthology films often have this problem, that kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, like Paris Je you know, those movies that are bundled up out of different movies. There's just Mm -hmm.
1: such a glaring distinction between the ones that work and the ones that don't. I mean high maintenance remains like one of the top five things we've ever 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 discussed on this show I think maybe Wait, which it's one? Top Sorry. 10, but high maintenance high maintenance high maintenance oh, oh, yeah. like the yeah. the anthology as like think about what that show does with the anthology format with a true curiosity about the variety of lives lived in New York again, probably you know it's all people can afford weed, but really, you felt like you were inhabiting an actual version of the city in that show. And there's a structure that, t- that takes you from show to show. And it does have a point of view about what life is like and what our relationship to substances, you know, your relationship to a mind altering substance is fundamentally an inquiry about your relationship to your own mind and self. Like the, there's a thread that's being pursued through those vignettes that really works. And like, what does the show have to say about modern love? Like nothing, it just wants to make you cry. It's an emotion delivery vehicle that wants to make you cry. And I cried, I cried at the 22nd minute of every single one I watched. Like (laughs) it it, it 100% worked on me. Like the Anne Hathaway, I am a big defender of Anne Hathaway. Like Anne Hathaway is too much and extra and she rubs people the wrong way and whatever. She's great. She was so great in Ocean's 8. She is, I am on the pro side. However, this did not do her any favors. Just her no. like emoting into a mirror. And yet I also cried. Like it it, <laughs> it, 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 it worked. It Can
3: worked. I ask a concluding question, Steve? How do you think it stands as evidence for or against Julia's robothood that she cried at the exact twenty second minute of every episode of Modern Love?
0: QED, she's a robot. Only only <laughs> only, a, only a being imitating humanity would cry at this show.
3: Eye moisture activated. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's uh modern love <laughs> is it it's also amazon prime i take it yeah it is it is okay uh on amazon prime uh, check it out tell us if we're right or wrong uh, all right moving on Morrissey was the lead singer of the legendary post-punk rock band, The Smiths. Uh, He created the band with Johnny Marr, the all-world guitarist. They're still among my absolutely favorite rock bands of all time. Uh, Morrissey was known for acerbic, literary, genuinely really clever lyrics and a highly distinctive singing voice filled with melancholy and spite. After the Smiths broke up, I you wouldn't have put your money on Morrissey to have had the better solo career than Marr, but it's not even close. He's had a very long, very successful one, some extraordinary records, Viva Hate, Foxhall and I, Your Arsenal are all really masterpieces. I mean, they're tremendous rock and roll records. Um, alongside which he's made increasingly troubling troubling statements, they've gotten worse and worse. This is a bit of a surprise. Morrissey's a vegan. He's been a hero to the others amongst others uh, ever since he created the Smiths. Why is he engaging himself in this orgy of othering directed overwhelmingly really at non-white immigrants to the UK? We're joined now by Randall Roberts, who's a staff writer at the LA Times to discuss a piece
2: he wrote about Morrissey and really asking the question, Randall, why hasn't Morrissey been canceled? That's a very good question. And I think that it's, I think that it's complicated over in the States because a lot of what Morrissey has been talking about is very UK oriented. He um, focuses almost completely on UK politics, and um, he makes a great distinction between Southern California and um, the the people he sings to here and those in the UK.
0: I think you're right about that, that that here in the states we might not be you know totally on top of the Maz as he's known over there, story. Um, so give us some maybe of the more controversial things that he's
2: said. Well, in the last year or two years, he's really doubled down. He's kind of skirted around the issue for a while, but a couple of years ago, he started expressing support for For Britain, which is a new political party, very much in favor of Brexit, um, headed by this woman named Anne-Marie Waters. It's a very, very small British party, but Morrissey has really, really expressed support for this, and Anne Marie Waters is a very controversial figure in the UK. And she speaks about white replacement theory. She speaks about immigration in the UK, and it troubles her. She's an anti-Islamist. She, and all of these are things that she says quite explicitly in speeches. And she she doesn't hide that. And Morrissey has really taken an affinity for this party. Tiny party. Earlier this year, he wore a For Britain pin on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. And that didn't really register all that much in the United States but in Britain the next day it was news because it once again it left no doubt what he believed and what he supported
1: has his has Morsey been cancelled in Britain in a way that he hasn't been cancelled here is this just about american ignorance of of the minutia of british politics and the complications of brexit which can, tends to glaze people's eyes even as it piques their curiosity here or is he also still somehow floating above cancellation
2: Uh, it's somewhere in between everybody everyone knows his his opinions and his beliefs on for britain and when he does speak about it it makes news but and a lot of people feel this way um music and politics are completely different things and a lot of his, a lot of his fans love the music might not completely believe in his politics but are able to make that leap
1: Yeah, they're able to compartmentalize it a little bit, I think. Can you talk a little bit to our listeners about Morrissey's particular relationship um, with Latino listeners and the listeners of Southern California, which is something that's of interest to us here at the LA Times?
2: Yes, he lived in Los Angeles for 10 or 15 years in the 90s and 2000s. He... um, has a huge latino following in southern california that has been there have been dissertations written about it books about it because he is so british and so how to put it he's he he's not the first person you would think a latino community would fall in love with whatever that means but um he's huge here and um his concerts here are one of a kind. I used to see him in the Midwest in Chicago and St. Louis and they were fun shows. The first time I saw him in Southern California at the Palladium, it was a fashion show, it was a cultural event, it was mothers and fathers and children, it was it was everything and it was I mean it was so much fun and it was unlike any any Music experience I've I've seen
1: the the occasion for your piece why hasn't Morrissey been canceled was uh, a show at the Hollywood Bowl this past weekend um, and we sent another reporter on the music team to go see what the response was of of folks in the crowd and they you know it, it, people's ability to kind of compartmentalize and separate the politics from the art and the artist continues to unfurl. I mean, obviously that was the self-selecting group of people who showed up and decided to to listen and enjoy the music anyway. Um, earlier in the segment, we were talking about scary movies and we we went back and watched Rosemary's Baby, which I'd never seen. So we're talking about two canceled slash uncanceled
2: mm-hmm.
1: makers of art that has resonated
2: uh, today. It's interesting, the whole time that I was working on this story, and even now, the Smith song There Is a Light That Never Goes Out has been running through my head. It's one of my favorite songs ever.
0: double crashes
2: I mean, I grew up listening to The Smiths. Not as much of a Morrissey fan, but not really for any reason other than I was listening to other stuff. But uh, the Smiths were foundational to me, and you know, me and my wife have conversations about do we listen to the Smiths? And you know, I talk to a lot of a lot of fans who have that conversation now, and it's, it's an interesting conversation to have, I think.
3: Randall, I have a question about Morrissey in performance. It seems like most of these objectionable things that he said and done, you know, wearing that pin on the Jimmy Fallon show to indicate his alliance with the British far right, or he called uh, the Chinese Chinese people a subspecies. This was a shocking to me comment that he made in an interview in twenty ten, so quite a while ago, in, in relation, I guess, to their treatment of animals, because he is of course a vegan and a big animal rights advocate. You know, but to jump from that to a country that has poor animal rights practices is a subspecies is, is a big big Jump, but I'm curious in his in between song pattern and performances in his performing persona. If that was all you knew of Morrissey and you didn't watch him on talk shows or read interviews with him, would you hear any of this rhetoric about you know racial separation and the invasion of the UK, etc.?
2: He has no problem at all speaking his mind on stage, but he's savvy enough to know what not to say on stage. I mean, the other night at the Hollywood Bowl, he for a while wore a shirt that um, criticized The Guardian. I can't remember what the phrase, but I, th- it was, I was just looking that up. Yeah, I think yeah. it
1: said, fuck The Guardian. Did it? Uh, <laughs> hold on. I'll fact check that while you finish your thought.
2: <laughs> um, yeah. he He's fine with, he's fine with decrying the press. He's fine with, Speaking about his veganism, uh, famously at Coachella, I was at the Coachella in 2009 when he was performing and somewhere in the distance, The Whiff of Burgers, uh, came through the breeze and he smelled it and he said something to the effect of, I smell burning and I hope it's, it, and it better be human flesh. Mm-hmm. Um,
3: right. Well, Meat is Murder, <laughs> so, right? Meat is Murder was the yeah, title yeah, of yeah, a album.
2: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder how many of his British fans, those who have been trolling me since this came out, are, are vegans and how many of them are nostalgists. Yeah, I, it was. I, I did confirm the shirt was "fuck the Guardian." Uh-huh.
1: But again, that's mm. sort of a if you if you are paying attention to all the symbols and signs, you know, the Guardian is essentially a leftist newspaper and or mm-hmm. left leaning. And anyway, that that's almost like subtweeting the politics without hitting it explicitly on stage yes. in front of a stadium full of uh, a, a fan base that's nearly as diverse as the city, I think, Mm -hmm. based on what Mm -hmm. our reporter saw there. Um, Steve, talk a little bit about your relationship with the Smiths and and, and how you've processed this turn in Morrissey's politics or whether it's really that much of a turn for a long time outspoken
0: bomb thrower. Well, the Smiths are uh, at the center of my, very close to the center of my musical taste and worldly sensibility um and in defense of the smiths as the smiths it was a cooperative band i mean it, it it's unthinkable that that music could have been made without the guitarist johnny marr composing the you know essentially composing the music i mean Morrissey must work with a collaborator he doesn't play an instrument he does not compose music he's a singer and a lyricist and a mel- melodist but um you know that music is as much johnny mars johnny mars proven himself to be a extraordinary empathetic human being uh, admirable human being as far as I know ever since I don't think I can cancel the Smiths they um, th- all of their output occurred in the you know uh, early to mid 80s really and um, it preceded Morrissey's anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric. Uh, I can, I, 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 Morrissey made wonderful solo albums. I can give them up because he's become a hateful figure. I think he deserves to be canceled on that level. But to me, there's a mystery here that I, I wonder, um, I wonder if we could speak to a little bit, which is, you know, Morrissey Randall, you, you know, this as a Smiths fan, you know, he was sort of a homebody and a weirdo in very working-class Manchester, England, Um, almost a shut-in, a real hothouse flower perceived of as non-straight and probably gay, and was ostracized not only by white working-class, you know, hooligan types. But even by the music community, I mean, you know, Manchester circa 1979, 1980s producing Joy Division, all these incredible punk and post-punk bands coming out of that music community. They didn't like Morrissey. They found him odd, fey, pretentious, you know, pseudo-literary. They kind of detested him. He was a real outsider's outsider. And he kind of got lucky in meeting Johnny Marr and they shared certain musical tastes and they just caught lightning in a bottle and created this amazing rock band. But he was tall and thin and very peculiar looking. And over the last 30 years or whatever it's been, he's, you know, like all of us do, he's added weight and he's become this kind of who, like almost hooligan looking guy. Like, you know, he was so slight, you felt like you could knock him over with the feather, but now he's got this kind of heavy machismo to him. And it's almost as if, there's almost a way in which he is, in his own mind, embracing some essential working class identity that was always a part of him, even when he was the victim, maybe, of its prejudices. And um, and it's like some kind of bizarre personal atavism by which he's saying, I'm a Mancunian. I'm from the white working class. That formed a part of my identity. That little England... That working class, tight knit, you know, uh, small island England, it, you know, means something to him in some way that was recessive for most of what he was doing, but has really come out as he as he hit middle age and is now, quite frankly, repulsive. I mean, I, I think this is not even a close call. I would never, ever put on a Morrissey solo record or go see much less go see a show
3: that you draw that distinction Steve between the Smiths and Morrissey's solo career is is really striking and i think is one of the ways to address this you know riddle of of or paradox or whatever it is of you know the question of when do you quote cancel an artist i mean i admit that there's something glib about the whole term cancel that i don't like in this in this context and when for example we talked about Rosemary's baby earlier in the show we didn't really touch on the later history of Roman Polanski and you know all of the Legal, I don't know what you want to call it, nightmares that have gotten us to where we are now in our relationship with him as an artist. Um, But it is true that Rosemary's Baby was made before any of that happened. Right. I mean, very shortly before, but before. And so part of the question becomes, you know, if you are going to decide the history attaching to this artist's life makes me too angry, too upset, too uncomfortable or offended to experience their art anymore. At what point do you date that? Right. I mean, do you not listen to the Jackson 5 anymore? (laughs) I don't know. I guess to me that there's no real one answer to that. But the way that you've chosen a division in Morrissey's life past which you're not interested in his art anymore seems like one of the ways that you know a, a consumer of that art could address it.
1: It all feels so arbitrary though, right? I mean like if the if the mind and morality of the artist is poisoned in whatever way allows them to treat people very badly or dismiss people in ways that don't line up with your ethics and politics like I don't know if the if the arbitrary line at which a discoverable act occurred and was reported is really the best cutoff point.
3: Well, I guess what y- I'm saying know. is that each person decides it for themselves. I mean, I certainly yeah. don't make that cutoff with anyone. In fact, I've loved many Roman Polanski movies that came after the entire story of his rape scandal and escape from justice, etc. cetera. Um, but it is utterly arbitrary. I guess. I guess I'm just observing that, you know, that what whether it's a defense mechanism to protect himself in the music that he does still want to listen to, or however you want to analyze it, that that's how Steve has chosen to address this kind of obstacle to loving the art that he wanted to love,
0: and that it was collab- I mean, and that it's collaborative. I'm listening to the work of a of a gifted composer named Johnny Marr. It is sung by a person who's become repellent after it was made, but. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just looking for an excuse not to give up this thing that I ch- beyond cherish. I mean,
2: it's part of who I am. Steve, I was going to tell you that Alan White, his co-writer on a lot of those Morrissey songs, I don't think agrees with Morrissey either. Um, I don't want to throw a, a wrench into your, into your um, rationalization. No, no, no. But, no, I under-
0: <laughs> no, listen. But I, I understand. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. I completely
0: understand that, that that he, he has to work with like, you know. Your arsenal is with Mick Ronson. I mean, he has to work with a mm. with a writer of music. He always has, and but that to me is not but, but that but then he's operating as a solo artist under his own name. The Smiths is something else. It was a cooperative thing. It doesn't bear his name directly. He was one of four people who made it. You know, I, I mean, I'm not saying it's not arbitrary, but it's not totally arbitrary.
2: Yeah, there's James Brown, who I mean, a formative figure who was known for his violence against women. There's, I mean, there, there's so many artists who, if you draw a line, you you lose a lot of amazing music. And I I don't know the answer to that. And I I mean, it's it is it's a personal thing, and it's it's. I mean, I can't control what goes through my head. I can, can I can cancel the Smiths, but if I hear "How Soon Is Now," uh, I, I there's a part of me that's always going to just love that song, regardless.
0: All right. Well, the piece is great. It's uh, Morrissey is anti-immigrant and backs a white nationalist political party. Why don't fans care? It's on the LA Times website. It's by Randall Roberts. Randall, thanks for coming in and uh, talking
2: with us. Thanks for inviting me.
0: All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have?
3: I'm going to go down this road. Our conversation about Rosemary's Baby, while lots of fun, did not even scratch the surface of everything I wanted to say about that movie and and talk about with you guys. And so I'm going to go down a very superficial road for my endorsement. But that is a huge part of the pleasure of the movie, which is the fashion of Rosemary's Baby. It's Mm. amazing. When I was watching it last night, my daughter wandered in and watched about the first half hour with me. She left before it got too scary or too sexual. She may or may not watch the rest of it, uh, depending on how interested she is. But the thing that blew her away was the 1960s shift dresses and just the incredible coats and quilted nightgowns and every single outfit that um, that Mia Farrow wore. She wasn't even around long enough to get to the haircut, which is one of the great makeovers in cinema history. I was right up there with Audrey Hepburn's haircut in Roman Holiday when she appears in the door. I've been to Vidal Sassoon. And she just looks mm-hmm. so incredible in her pixie cut. And then you know that the Satanists are evil because they all hate her haircut. I mean, how could anyone <laughs> hate Mia Farrow in a pixie cut? But the clothes she wears are just extraordinary. They're designed by a designer named Anthea Silbert, who also did the costumes for Chinatown, which she was nominated for an Oscar for. I don't think she won, though. And the costumes for Julia also got an Oscar nomination. And uh, I just think they're exceptional. So I was going down this rabbit hole of looking into the costumes in Rosemary's Baby, and I came across this blog called Clothes on Film. So in a way, I'm endorsing the whole blog because it's full of really interesting stuff. But if you go to clothesonfilm.com and just type Rosemary's Baby into the search bar, you'll get multiple blog posts about Rosemary's baby. One specific one just about the red trouser suit, the kind of lounging pajamas that she wears on the night that she's impregnated with Satan's baby. That's one incredible outfit. Um then, you know, discussions between costume designers about the various outfits she wears and how they fit into the story, how they change seasonally, right? Because over the course of her pregnancy it goes from late in one year through Christmas, through New Year's to finally summertime when she has the baby and the clothes keep changing with that. But my favorite of all the posts on Clothes on Film about Rosemary's baby. Were the paintings of this artist named Kathy Lomax, who's painted every one of the fifty-six costumes from Rosemary's Baby that Mia Farrow wears, on canvas, oil on canvas paintings, and descriptions of of what the um, the outfit looks like? And it's just a it's a really interesting project to take on to make these kind of abstracted paintings of um, Mia Farrow in a movie, and they're they're beautiful paintings, and also sort of make you realize how much thought was put into the costumes and how much the costumes make that character. So, go to Close on Film, enter Rosemary's Baby into the search bar and just spend a happy hour or two studying up on those great costumes.
1: Mm-hmm. Would wear like every single outfit. Every that she one. Wears every one.
3: I, my my she daughter was tea. just clutching and the my ones arm. that
1: wouldn't the ones that wouldn't be good on me would be good on you, Dana. I feel like <laughs> you and I together could like really trade those looks. I don't know that I could pull off the the holiday party dress with the lace collar and the red, but I think you would look stunner in that.
3: Yeah, she does those kind of Mary Quant shift kind of dresses that I still am always looking for copies of to this day. But what about even when she's lounging, that scene where she's interrupted by Ruth Gordon while she's <gasps> lounging on her couch oh, God, wearing a floor-length wool plaid skirt and a blue turtleneck? Just so cozy. The
1: level of pile and tuft on that plaid <laughs> is just like, it's it's 70s shag level. It's, extra, it's astonishing.
3: I mean, it's all, even that is only a smaller part of the general production design of the film that's incredible but i mean if you just want to zero in on the costume design that is a fun place to go
0: oh man meanwhile roman castanets and i are smoking cigarettes in the other room while you two are
3: Gabin about fashion
0: jk all right uh, julia what do you got
1: uh okay i'm gonna recommend a slate pitch found in the pages of bon appetit magazine um this is spurred by the fact that uh, the fires near the Getty Center in Los Angeles has caused my family everything's fine, 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 but there's a lot of smoke. So uh, my family relocated for one night to Manhattan Beach, a neighborhood in the South Bay of Los Angeles, where, for dinner, my husband and I ate at Houston's. Have you guys ever been to a Houston's? No. Is that a chain? It is a chain. The chain is a part of the Hillstone Group, which is also behind R&D Kitchen and a couple of other names. And there's a piece... Uh, by Andrew Knowlton in 2016 in Bon Appetit called Welcome to Hillstone, America's Favorite Restaurant, in which uh, the Bon Appetit editor responsible for finding the like hot new 10, you know, most obscure, most interesting, most food desired restaurants in the country, sings the praises of this chain restaurant that is beloved of David Chang and um, Danny Meyer and uh, John and Vinny, this, this duo of restaurateurs here in Los Angeles for its just perfection and precision. And I will recommend both the restaurant and the article, but the article is just a very fun um Romp in which the editors of Bon Appetit sort of challenge their own assumptions and acknowledge everything they typically value, and then find a way to just be completely in love with a chain restaurant. Uh, And what they praise the chain restaurant for is a Danny Meyer level of precision and care about the customer experience, just high, high quality customer experience and consistency of experience. Every table. bolted to the floor so there's never a wobble the restaurants are designed so that almost every table is a booth Uh, each booth has a spotlight installed directly above it so you never have to take out the flashlight on your phone to see what it is that you're ordering the um, you know kale salad is just impeccably delicious Uh, if you ask for an off-menu orange juice it will come to you like purely fresh squeezed and in a trice and anyway the article is great and to read the article while in a booth under a spotlight at a table that's not wobbling while your husband's drinking freshly squeezed orange juice at a Houston's uh, really <laughs> t- takes the takes the uh, pain out of being displaced by fire. So I would like to make our listeners aware of the Hillstone group. Many of them no doubt already are. Uh, and send them to this Bon Appetit article, which is a very charming tour of this place's charms.
0: I have lived long enough to s- sit on a Culture Gap Fest panel in which Julia Turner cries during a rom-com and endorses upskill American casual dining experience I was not <gasps> I, I was I, <laughs> I just, not expecting that I don't
1: that. know are you calling it basic <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why you guys are calling the, the endorsing this restaurant whatever you can think whatever you want about it I would send you the article endorsing I cry at everything all of our listeners know I'm a soft touch with a cry I'm, I'm mm. just a very easy cry and always have been.
0: Uh, yeah, that's an easy fix, an easy patch. Just download the new software. Uh, <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, so I am endorsing three things very quickly, kind of inspired by the Morrissey withdrawal that I'm not really going through. One is uh, there's a he, absolutely hilarious video on YouTube called How to Write a Morrissey Song. Um this just sort of ordinary crew crew-cutted blonde guy with an acoustic guitar has so nailed it that like musically what what is like the essential ingredient of a Morrisu song musically is as he says over and over again just sing the third so there's the tonic and then you go up the scale, the second and the third. So, do, re, mi, I guess it's me. Um, and you just sing it over and over again, no matter what the chord change underneath is doing. And it automatically creates a, it's like a machine for creating Smith songs and Morrissey songs, the way like playing a guitar in Open G is just a, a machine for producing Rolling Stone songs. Like, once you know the secret, you can manufacture them by the freaking bushelful. And he's just very funny. He's got this wonderful, phlegmatic, ironic style it is it's really like it's if you care even a tiny bit or even just negatively about morrissey uh it's 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 funny it's really worth uh it's really worth checking out it's how to write a morrissey song on youtube and then i came across an essay that i really loved which was you know morrissey's sort of the first sad boy of sadcore he kind of birthed a million you know self-pitying white male you know indie rock acts um, and an essayist, a woman named Christy Coulter, an essayist, has written an article about what it was like to be a woman who kinds of kind of loves this genre of music and how she followed the fate of one band in particular that I love, that nobody knows. I've pushed for them so hard on the show, The Apartments. I love The Apartments and The Apartments are sort of the saddest of the sadcore bands and um, and she just wrote an essay about what's a, what it's like as a woman to like this kind of music and respond to this genre of male self-pity and about sort of the fate of the apartments. And then this relationship she strikes up with the lead guy from the apartments via email. It's a beautiful uh, little piece of writing on the Paris Review website. Um, and then I can't help it. I got to just throw in one more. That sent me to YouTube just to watch the apartments play live because I've never been able to see them. But there's a video of them doing their song, Mr. Somewhere, and it's called the quote-unquote FD Acoustic Session. Please, please go look at it. These guys are so, so good, and too few people know about it. Um, so anyway, those are my endorsements. Check them out. You somewhere, you somewhere. Never did. Just how. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today, at our show page that's slate.com slash culturefest please email us I love getting a sense of what the community of listeners is like you never disappoint when you email us it uh, heartens uh, each one of the three of us uh, you can email us at culturefest at slate.com you can interact with us on twitter that's at uh, slate cult our producer is Benjamin Frisch our production assistant is Rachel Allen for Dana Stevens and uh, Julia Turner I'm Stephen Metcalf thank you so much for joining us we will see you soon